The Gospel of John, chapter 4. The title of this message is Seek, and we'll see why that is when we get into this. John chapter 4, for many of us, is a familiar story. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But just because it's familiar, let's not kind of think that we know it all and we've got nothing to learn from it. I am confident that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to all of us today. And he's been kicking my rear end lately with this text. So I hope he does the same to you. John chapter 4, let's start in verse 1. It says, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there came a Samaritan woman to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then parenthetically it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful historical account before us. We thank you that we see you seeking after this woman, that you're pursuing her in your love. We thank you for the story, and we rejoice this morning that this is our story, that we are those that you sought out, that you went after, that we might be saved, that we might drink of the living water and have eternal life. And we ask that as those who have been saved, we would experience the fullness of your life in us and through us. That God, we would no longer be satisfied with our lives and our agendas, but we would live for you and your glory, your honor, your praise, and your agenda among the nations. We realize, God, that this is going to require that you rattle us because we are self-centered, self-absorbed. And so we just ask that you would grab a hold of our hearts and our minds and our spirits today, that you would give us a deep concern for others and the plight of others, that you would make us aware of the least and the last, the broken and the marginalized, and that you would give us a model for mission and that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live for your glory, and to react this encounter in our culture, in our communities all the time as you would teach us to seek after others for your glory. Speak to us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, there's a lot more of this story that we could have read, and there are a lot of deep theological implications in John chapter 4, and we're not going to deal with them all. We're not going to do a thorough exposition or exegetical study of the passage. We're just trying to pull out some things that speak to us about living a life on mission realizing that Jesus is our model for being on mission. So how did Jesus do mission? We understand that to be on mission is to be sent. To be on mission is to be given a special assignment, a purpose to pursue and to complete. We've been sent into the purposes of God. And so what we want to do as God's people is live missionally. And in order for us to live missionally, we have to recapture thoroughly our sense of sentness. We have to see ourselves wherever we are at all times as having been sent there by God. Because Jesus said in John 17 and John 20, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. So our understanding of ourselves from Scripture is that we are a sent people. And what Jesus said is that we have been sent by him in the same way that the Father sent him. So therefore, Jesus becomes our model for mission. How do we do mission? How do we live on mission and stay in motion for the glory of God? Jesus is the model for that. Now, when we start to look at Jesus missiologically, when we start to view his life that way and try to glean from it, what's going to rise to the surface is this intense humility that Christ had. So much so that we are forced to say that the basis of all mission is humility. The basis of all mission is humility. When I say basis, I don't mean foundation or underlying support. That's the glory of God, the foundation and underlying support of all mission. What I mean is the system or the principles according to which we carry out the act of mission. The system, the principles of mission are humility. And the reason that we say this again is because of Jesus and most specifically his incarnation. And we've already talked about that in this series. And what the theological epistles in the New Testament say about the incarnation of Jesus and its implications for humility. Philippians chapter two says that Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He surrendered his divine privileges that he took on himself the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. The salient point is that Jesus, to be on mission, humbled himself radically. So much so that we can say there is no Missio Christi, there is no mission of Christ without the deep humility that we see displayed in the incarnation and the life of Christ. And so for us, if we are to be people that live on mission, we'll never be successful unless by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we develop a deep humility. 
Now, where we see this today is this interaction in John chapter 4. And this interaction is important because it's really the first time in the Gospels that we see Jesus going after a particular person. It's early in the Gospel narrative. It's just chapter 4 of John. And he's going after this woman with radical relational intent. There's a lot to be gleaned from this. Verse 4 gives us some insight. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's strong language. It's even stronger in the Greek. I'll explain it in a minute. But it says, he had to pass through Samaria. What's interesting about that is that he didn't actually have to pass through Samaria according to given cultural standards within the Judaism of the time. In fact, excuse me, he was expected not to pass through Samaria. He was in Jerusalem, wanted to go to Galilee. Geographically speaking, Samaria laid smack dab between the two. But for reasons that I'll explain thoroughly in a minute, observant Jews, pious Jews, religious Jews would never go through Samaria. They would cross over to the east side of the Jordan, head up that way, and then cross back over around Galilee. They would altogether avoid Samaria. That's what was expected of Jewish people at the time. So when it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria... There's something different there, and there's something really strong. Those of you that have the old King James Bible, your Bible says it the best. It says, Jesus must needs pass through Samaria. I love that language. How weird is that? Must needs. I use it all the time when I want something. Oh, must needs one of those. (laughs) Must needs an iPad. Must needs one of those. All the time I use that. It's great language. It's biblical. Jesus must needs pass through Samaria. But it wasn't a cultural or a religious thing. It was a God thing. Phrase in the Greek that's translated must needs or was necessary for him to or he had to means that it was necessary because of the nature of things. Necessary because of the nature of things. So what was the nature of the case? Was it geographic or was it theocentric? Did he go through Samaria for convenience sake or for Christ's sake, for the glory of God? Was it pragmatic, the shortest distance between point A and B, or was it purposeful? Jesus would say later on in Luke chapter 19 of himself that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That word seek, I want us to think about it for a moment. The word seek connotes, carries the idea that something is not readily accessible or attainable. That's the idea there. there. There's some difficulty in getting to it. That's why we're using the word seeking. You can't just reach out and grab it. He came to seek and to save Seek. It wasn't readily attainable or accessible. What was he seeking? He was seeking the lost. Does that mean that the lost were hard to find, that Jesus was incarnated and looked around and said, where's all the lost people? I can't find any. That's not what it means. What it means is that there are tremendous barriers that keep people from hearing the gospel message and coming to God. So much so that they put Christ in the position of seeking 
to save those who were lost. These barriers that are hindrances to people hearing of eternal life. Now, obviously, the biggest barrier is the sin issue. And that's the number one barrier that Jesus came to deal with, to remove that barrier that we can be reconciled to God, have new life and eternal life. But before we can even get to the sin issue and the sin barrier that needs to be removed, there are other barriers in society, in culture, in our lives that keep us from even getting to the point where we can hear the message that deals with the sin issue. And missiologists and missionaries are always talking about and writing about and trying to figure out how to deal with the cultural barriers around the world, how to deal with language barriers and societal barriers and traditional barriers and worldview barriers. How do we deal with those? How do we address those? How do we access people in spite of those? And we, who are missiologists and missionaries that may never get on an airplane. In other words, we know that we're called to live life on mission right now where we are. We are a sent people. We also realize and we need to think about and strategize about the fact that there are barriers in the lives of the people that we love, more importantly, that God loves, that keep them from being able to hear the message. We need to identify those. We need to address those. We need to handle those carefully. In this story, in Jesus' context here, there are some serious barriers that had to be gotten through before this woman could hear the message of eternal life. There's racial issues going on here, religious issues, gender issues here. There's deep identity issues And there are issues of sexuality that Jesus addresses in the story. And what happens is that these issues become barriers that could have kept this woman from hearing about eternal life. And we are surrounded by such barriers every day. Now, the first place that we encounter a barrier is in the text where we already know that Jesus is a Jew. If you didn't know that, welcome to the Bible. Jesus is a Jew, and the woman was a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jew, and the woman was a Samaritan. If we do a little bit of study, we find out that that means there were real racial and religious issues. Samaria, as I said, was and is the region between Jerusalem and Galilee on the west side of the Jordan River. It is still a region today. Jacob's well is still there today. There are still Samaritans, an actual people group that live there in communities today. It's in an area that we would now call the West Bank. Now, in the time of Christ, there were deep-seated racial tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. Tensions is not strong en- a strong enough word. There was radical hatred, racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And there had been by the time of Christ for over 500 years. I mean, we can't even fathom that as Americans. We're a pretty young country. We're talking over 500 years of hatred between people that live right next to each other. Part of the reason was uh, the various conquerings that took place in Israel throughout history. 721 years before Jesus, the Assyrians were kind of conquering the world and they came and conquered the northern part of Israel and 
the area of Samaria. And they did two things. They carried off some of the Jews that lived in Samaria, and they planted some of their own people among the Jews that lived in Samaria. And the Jews of that region did something that was a no-no for the Jews. They intermarried with other people. They intermarried with the Assyrians and with the people called the Cuthites. So there was intermarriage in the exile when they were taken away and in the land. Later on, they would come back to the land and the racial line had been broken, if you will, right? Through this intermarriage. Now, a couple hundred years later in about 586 BC, the southern region around Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Israel was conquered by another people group, the Babylonians. They did the same thing, put some of their people there among the Jews and took some of the Jews away. These Jews in the south refused to intermarry. They knew it was a no-no. They didn't intermarry with other people. They kept the line racially pure, if you will, which was important to them. Later on, when everyone is back in the land and they've returned, these Jews in the southern kingdom looked to these Jews in the northern kingdom and said, you guys compromised. In the face of foreign conquerors, in the face of difficulty, you compromised our Jewish Hebrew identity. You intermarried and made yourselves impure. You guys are half-breeds. And we don't like you. This was very real to them at the time. And not only was there this racial tension that developed from that compromise of the Samaritans, but there was also religious compromise among them. They took on some of the pagan elements of Assyrian religions when, and the Assyrians were real purposeful of implanting it in their land. And so they took the Judaism that they had before and, and they meshed into it pagan elements. And so they were uh, practicing syncretism. They were taking different religious elements from different places and melding it into one. That's another big Jewish no-no. You don't do that. You keep Judaism pure, racially and religiously. And they compromised on both accounts. So much so was this compromise viewed by the rabbis down in Jerusalem that they declared all Samaritans all unclean all the time. And that's why pious Jews would not go through Samaria. If you went through their land, you were religiously impure and unclean and you weren't allowed to participate in the religious life of Israel. That's why in verse 9, we have that parenthetical statement where the lady says, you want to drink a water from me? How can that be? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. And then it says, for Samaritans have no dealings with Jews. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally in the Greek, that means we don't share cups. We don't drink from the same cups. You guys won't drink from our cups because it will make you ceremonially unclean. You'll be defiled. And we won't drink from your cups because we don't like you. So how is it that you want to drink from me? And the hatred was real and intense on both sides. Later on in Luke chapter 9, Jesus would be going from the north this time down toward Jerusalem and his disciples would go into a city of Samaria to get it ready for Jesus as he was traveling through. And the Samaritans in Luke chapter 9 said, we don't want you guys here. You're going to Jerusalem. You must be observant Jews. You don't like us. We don't like you. Get out of our town. And the disciples in Luke chapter 9 turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? <laughs> Let me make that less innocuous. Jesus, can we kill them? That's what they were saying. 
That's how real this racial hatred was, was that they were kicked out of the city and the disciples said, Jesus, can we have permission to wipe them out? And the Jews were no better in the view of Samaritans. The rabbis used to say during the time, quote, let no man eat bread with Samaritans for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. If you know Judaism, that's a no-no. And a popular prayer during the time was, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. In other words, Lord, let them be damned forever. No hope for heaven. We hope they go to hell. And they meant it. This was real, radical, racial, geographic, religious hatred. And throughout history, they would war one another and retaliate at one another. And the Jews uh, from the south would go up and destroy the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. And a few years before Christ came, the Samaritans came down just before Passover and spread bones all over the temple ground, human bones, thereby defiling it and keeping the Jews from celebrating Passover, their independence feast. These were radical, real acts of hatred. And this stuff goes on in our world every day. When I was preparing this message last night, I happened to click on the Fox News real quick and saw that there was um, some back and forth violence going on on the Temple Mount. Arabs and Palestinians were throwing rocks at Jews and tourists and the Jewish police came in and responded with force and they were firing tear gas and there was the same sort of hatred and the same sort of back and forth. And we see it in the Middle East every day. But what we need to realize is that we see it on the California coast every day. It's just not as overt, but do you understand that in our own communities here in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria and Ventura, that we have a Hispanic community, 50% in Carpinteria, my hometown, 50% in the Hispanic community. And, and do you realize that we don't live in the same neighborhoods? We don't eat at the same restaurants? We don't shop at the same stores? We don't wave when we're driving past each other? We don't look each other in the eye when we're walking down the street and that we actually walk down different streets. That in our midst, in our own community, there's real racial tension, issues that become barriers. And racial and religious barriers are some of the biggest because they're sacred. People don't cross over those barriers easily. They hold on to them. And Jesus becomes a barrier breaker as a Jew going into Samaria, seeking after this woman. Oh, she's a woman. There's another issue. There is very real gender issues going on here. Jesus is at the well in the middle of the day alone and the woman comes and she's alone and according to that culture, it was totally inappropriate for them to talk. It was a different culture. Now you'd be like, oh, hookup, awesome. And you go talk if you're not married. This was a totally, 
different culture at the time. What was culturally expected of Jesus is that as he was sitting at the well and he saw the woman approaching, he was to back up at least 20 feet in a passive sort of stance, thereby signaling that it was morally and culturally acceptable for her to approach the well while he maintained his difference and do what she needed to do. And yet Jesus is here not only as a man and a Jewish man, but a Jewish rabbi. And if there's one thing that Jewish men did not do, and especially Jewish rabbis, it was discuss theological issues with women. And if you were to read the, later, the text later on, you'll see that they had some real heavy, deep theological discussions. It was another no-no for Jews. In fact, the Mishnah, which is a recording of Jewish oral law, says this, quote, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna, hell. Now, I'm happy to say we don't view women the same way these days. <laughs> but it was real at this time. In fact, in verse 27, the disciples come and it says they were amazed that Jesus was speaking to a woman. I mean, they were amazed. What is he doing breaking that cultural gender barrier normative boundary? This is scandalous. A Jewish rabbi alone with this woman talking theology? This is ridiculous. They're very upset by that. Now, the gender issues in our culture are not the same. They're different. But we have gender issues and I hope to get into this in the weeks to come in the Missio Christi series, but we have some serious gender issues. I mean, it's almost an accepted thing in our culture that people would change their gender. People have sex changes in our culture that, that we've come to the place where we understand, oh, you're in the wrong body. Okay, well, let's change your body parts and let's adjust that and let's do this whole gender swap thing. We've got radical gender issues. Somehow, we're in a culture that is just on the verge, if not already celebrating gender change, and yet the Olympic Committee won't let women participate in the ski jump competition. You can change your gender. You can get married to the same gender, but you better not jump on your skis, young lady. I mean, we're more messed up than they were in the time of Jesus. There's serious gender issues that can become barriers to people hearing the gospel. And what we understand well and what Jesus is dealing with here are identity issues, identity issues. We've got some clues in the text about how this woman was identified by others and how she felt about herself. She's there at the well at noon. In that culture, and we also know from reading in Genesis, women generally went to the well in the morning or in the evening. There were some uh, uh, meteorological reasons for that. You know, in the summertime in Israel, it got hot during the day. So let's go early before it gets too hot, or let's go later when it's not so hot. I've been in Israel before when it was 140 degrees. But it's not always hot. In the wintertime, it's very, fairly temperate and mild. There were pragmatic reasons for that. They just needed water in the morning and then they needed to replenish it in the evening. So 
They didn't really go in the middle of the day, nor did they go alone. We know this from cultural studies and from the book of Genesis, that women always went in groups. And again, there were some religious moral reasons for that. For propriety's sake, it was just right for women to go there in groups. The well was like the, the ancient Starbucks. It was like the, the Starbucks of the day. Everyone needed water in that culture, just like everyone needs coffee in our culture. And so everyone would go there. And in the morning, you could count on all the people being there. I know many of you that I'm going to see if I go to Starbucks in the morning. I could count on you being there. You are faithful clockwork when it comes to your coffee, right? This was the Starbucks of the day. Water was a commodity. People would gather in the morning, they gather in the evening. I love coffee around 3.30. You know what I mean? That little pick-me-up before I go home and play with my kids. And so that was, that was a normal thing. So this woman goes in the middle of the day, violating everything that was normal in culture. Why would she do that? Well, she was cutting herself off from the rest of the group. She didn't want to go to Starbucks in the morning because she knew she would see those women there. She didn't want to go to Coffee Bean in the evening because she knew she would see those people there. And she was ashamed of who she was. The text can only suggest that to some degree she was ostracized and rejected by the other women of the community because there she is when no other woman and no other person was supposed to be around at the well by herself. This was a woman who was identified as a bad woman and who felt badly about herself. And Jesus brings out why this is. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Well, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you've said truly. And the woman said to him, in perhaps the greatest understatement in the history of the world, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Five broken marriages. There's a lot of relational issues there. There's no way around that. There's a lot of relational brokenness that caused that and that results from that. And there was sexual immorality going on. She was living with some guy that wasn't her husband. That wasn't normal in culture then like it is now. She was rejected by the other women in the community and she felt ashamed she felt second best, less than, not worthy to be with. And we can understand this, these feelings of brokenness. To one degree or another, we all experience them. Relational brokenness, sexual brokenness, sexual issues, sexual abuse, failed marriages. These are the kind of things that we understand these are the kind of things that Jesus is wanting to deal with with her so he could get her the good news of the gospel that heals all brokenness. And so the racial, religious, gender, identity, relational, and sexual issues were all barriers that if Jesus had not been intentional in a few key ways, would have kept this woman 
from hearing the good news from this man. So this man had to approach things very carefully because when this woman came toward the well and saw that man, she was savvy, savvy enough to know Jewish rabbi. I don't like him. He doesn't like me. I don't want anything to do with this guy. You better move away and do what is culturally expected. He didn't move away. For some reason, she moved near. And what we see Jesus doing that brings a deeper interaction that will bring eternal life for many is a radical display of humility. Jesus doesn't walk into this interaction as the leader of a worldwide revolution. Listen to me. He walks into this interaction as one who had just been disapproved of, rejected, and endangered. That's what's going on in verses one through three when it says that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was baptizing more than John. They disapproved of that. They didn't like that. They didn't approve of his ministry, of him having disciples and baptizing people, and they were upset by that. And Jesus, for various reasons, avoided certain kinds of conflict with the religious leaders until the right time, which was a cross. And so Jesus had just had an interaction in Jerusalem where he was disapproved of, rejected, and endangered. He left because he had to because of the conflict. He doesn't step into this situation as a king of glory that he is leading a worldwide revolution. He steps into his person who had just been and understands what it's like to be disapproved of, rejected, and endangered. Beyond that, Jesus makes himself the minority. He wasn't sitting around in Jerusalem wanting the Samaritan woman to come there where she would be the minority, where she would be further ostracized and rejected and discriminated against and unwanted. Instead, Jesus went where he became the minority, where he was discriminated against, where he was unwanted, he went there. He had just been rejected. He goes where he's unwanted and he is in legitimate need. Verses six and seven tell us that he was tired and he was thirsty. What we're starting to see as it pertains to mission is that Jesus is one who knew what it was like to be rejected and have to be exiled. That had happened too as a young child in Luke chapter two when he and his family had to flee to Egypt because Herod was killing Jewish boys. You remember that? They'd been exiled in Egypt. Here he is now again, chased out of Jerusalem, so to speak. He went where he was a minority that would be discriminated against, didn't wait for them to come to him. He's not sitting in the church saying, hey, come in here, non-Christian. There's several hundred of us here. Come here. <laughs> where they feel uncomfortable, the minority may be discriminated against, maybe misunderstood. Instead, he went into her context to become that person. And this is radical for us. He allowed himself again to be in real need. He put himself in a position, some circumstantial, some intentional, but all providential, where he actually and truly needed the person that he went to minister to. And because Jesus positions himself this way, he is able to do something astounding. He is able to break 
all of those radical, well-set, established, hundreds of year old barriers with just four words. He says to the woman, give me a drink. And with just those four words, all of the barriers come down. He was dealing with the racial issues, the religious issues, the gender issues, her identity issues. All of a sudden, she's needed. She's valuable. In this, we begin to see a profound theology of mission. Jesus humbles himself to the point of needing the very person he came to minister to. Isn't that what we see happening in the incarnation? Jesus actually became a baby. He actually needed someone to feed him and to burp him, to hold him, and to teach him how to walk. God humbled himself to the point of literally needing those to whom he was intending to save. One author says about this interaction, Jesus does not establish his initial relationship with her by explaining how much she needs him and his message. That will come later. Rather, his opening line means, I am weak, I need you, can you help me? Now, Jesus characterized himself as a servant. In Mark 10, 45, he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want us to think about what Jesus demonstrates to us as far as being a servant. He was truly a servant because he put himself at the mercy of those he came to save. To always serve from a place of power is not to be a servant, but a benefactor. To provide from a place of power, to care from a place of power is not to actually be a servant, but to be a benefactor. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus came to be a benefactor, but he came to be a servant. And a servant is actually in need and dependent upon, to some degree, some other people. That's why Jesus came as a babe and not as a king. That's why he is the lamb as well as the lion. And we are called to be servants, not always benefactors. And Jesus attempted to build this into the life of his disciples and he's trying to build it into you and into me. When he sent them out on their first missionary trip in Mark chapter six, Jesus instructed them not to take a bunch of supplies. He said, don't take any bread. Don't take a bag with you. Don't take any money. Don't take an extra coat. In other words, he was going to purposefully put them in need of the people he was sending them to. Now, here's why that's hard for us. Because as Americans, we always want to set ourselves up as the benefactors manifest destiny. We are the benefactors of the world. And as American individuals, we work really hard in our lives not to be in need. We want to be the people that are in control, that have it together, that can meet other needs. We work really hard not to be in the need of others. But what we see Jesus doing is putting himself in need of the very woman that he wanted to save. And it's not, for him or for us, a contrived strategy. It is authentic humility. 
The incarnation was not contrived strategy. It was God humbling himself in order to save. And humility then is the basis of mission and humility has to be learned. It doesn't come naturally to most of us. And something that's got to be learned as we look at scripture and we look at Jesus and as God allows circumstances in our lives. My daughter getting cancer this year has caused me to need people like I've never needed people before. I wasn't the one anymore that was always ministering to others. I needed to be ministered to. Our family wasn't the one that was in the position to give. We, we've needed a lot of help. I've needed the body of Christ. We've needed the body of Christ. And we've needed not yet Christians. At no point were we in control of the circumstances, able to deal with them. We sat before doctors and nurses who knew infinitely more than us and who we desperately needed. And there's a different humility that's worked into life when we allow ourselves to need other people truly. Jesus models this for us. And here's why it's imperative for our lives because to the outside world, to not yet Christians looking at us, we often look like that Jewish rabbi and they often feel like that Samaritan woman. There's all sorts of thoughts and feelings and ideas that come into their minds as to why we don't like them and they don't like us and why we should just step back and give them their space. We've talked about before in this series that the three number one preconceptions about Christians in America from non-Christians are that we are anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. So just like this woman walked up and said, uh-oh, Jewish, mm, racial issues, rabbi, mm, religious issues, man, oh gosh, gender issues. Wow, all these things. They look at us and say, lifestyle issues, sexual issues, consistency issues, all sorts of things that would then become barriers that might keep them from hearing the good news that we have been entrusted with. And how we need to position ourselves as Christ positioned themselves is in a manner in which we could get into the conversation with them. Jesus had a deep theological conversation with this woman. We need to position ourselves through humility. Through genuine humility to be in the conversation. Studies show that most young, not yet Christians form their perceptions of Christianity primarily through conversations with other people. See, we want to blame it on the media. We want to think, oh, CNN, they're doing us in. They're doing Christianity so wrong. And we want to blame it on bad media exposure and the folly of Christian leaders. And that's why they think these things about us. And that's why they don't understand us and they don't like us. But studies show that it's not the media that's the primary influence on their perceptions of us. 
but it's their conversations with real people, often with Christian people. What's at stake is not what they think about us. That only matters insofar as it affects what they think about Jesus. That's the issue. And where they are getting their perceptions, where they're forming their ideas, which are that we're homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical, is through conversations with us. That means, because they're affected by conversations, that we have a great opportunity and a great responsibility. We have a great opportunity to be like Jesus and, 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 and enter into the conversation. And we have a responsibility to do that. And that requires that we're going to be purposeful about breaking down barriers. So what we're talking about are real, genuine relationships. And what we're learning from Jesus is that there's not a real genuine relationship unless there's this mutual need of each other. One longtime missionary writes about this and says, the only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. That's kind of hard for us to think about, so let me give us an illustration. Marriage. Marriage is saying, I need you and you need me. Marriage was designed by God for there to be mutual need and so fulfillment and deep love. That's how it's designed by God. It's not good for man to be alone. See, in marriage, as long as both partners have this legitimate, God-given need of each other and seek to meet each other's needs, then the relationship blossoms and flourishes and is beautiful. As soon as one person says, I don't need you, that relationship is broken. And so it is between races and gender and people groups. The moment we say, I don't need you, we don't need you, the relationship is broken. When we, through true humility, place ourselves in a setting of mutual need, then relationship can flourish and be built and barriers are brought down and the gospel is communicated. It's astounding to me that Jesus did not need to have it all together right here. Quite frankly, he didn't have it all together. Okay, listen, the guy is at a well in the middle of the day with no bucket. Okay, nobody did that. Nobody did that. It's like showing up at Starbucks in the morning with no money. You're like, oh, I forgot it. Like, you don't do that. Now, I'm confident that Jesus and his boys had a bucket. Every traveling group in that day had a leather bucket. A little stick would hold open the mouth. It would be on a rope. You'd lower it down, pull it up, use your water, and then you could roll that little leather thing up and put it in your bag, and it was very transportable. Every group traveling had it. They for sure had one. But the disciples went to town to buy food, and I'm confident that Jesus let them take the bag, thereby putting himself in legitimate need of this woman. Jesus didn't need to have it all together. You know, one of his initial interactions with Peter was very similar. There was a multitude pressing in around Jesus. He was on the Sea of Galilee and he was getting ready to preach, but the people were pushing him up against the sea. And so he said, Peter, I need your boat. I want to get in your boat. I want to use it to preach from. I need you to row out a little bit and hold it steady. 
Jesus, to accomplish his mission at that moment, legitimately needed Peter, who would become one of the greatest apostles. And it started not with Peter first needing Jesus, but Jesus needing Peter. That's radical humility for God. Jesus so emptied himself that he actually needed those that he came to save. We don't have to have it together all the time and we can't walk around in culture as Christians acting like we have it together all the time. What we do have is the message of the gospel, eternal life, Jesus, entrusted in earth and broken vessels and it's the most important thing in the world. We got that. But we don't have everything else. So to be missional, to live with gospel intentionality means that we will be both givers and receivers. We've got something to give for sure. We've got something to teach, but we've got something to learn as well. We're going to have legitimate needs. What this does for the woman, what it will do in our world, is it instantly elevated her sense of self-worth. She was legitimately needed by this Jewish rabbi man. She was ashamed. She was ostracized. She was relationally broken and sexually broken. But in the moment, she was actually needed. That elevated her sense of self-worth. You see, humility and mutual need moves us away from viewing people as projects and to actually demonstrating love and care. Did you know that most non-Christians think that we view them as projects? Just conversion possibilities? Did you know that only one-third of non-Christians think that Christians actually care about them? Only one out of three people outside there look in here and say, yeah, they care about me. Only one out of three. And most of them think that we just see them as a project. You see, true humility and mutual need moves us from being project-oriented to relationally oriented. Other people would have struggled with this woman if they knew her deal. Jesus knew her deal. She, he knew her past. He knew her current sin. And he's still there with her. The, the disciples wouldn't want to be caught dead with that woman. They'd want to call down fire again. Because God knows something that we often don't get. Those who are forgiven much love much. The prostitute who fell at the feet of Jesus in the Pharisee's house, Jesus said about her, she's loving me much because she's been forgiven a lot. You know what that also means? That means that people that need a lot of forgiveness also need a lot of love. Those who are the most broken, the most ostracized and made the biggest mess, they need our love and relational care the most. They don't need us to tell them that we're not okay with their behavior. I think they're getting that. I think they're getting that. That we're not okay with their behavior. Jesus didn't condone this woman's behavior. He's dealing with the sin. He always dealt with the sin. But loving someone doesn't mean we condone their behavior. He was able to love even though her behavior was very bad. 
Loving someone doesn't mean you condone their behavior. In fact, from a biblical perspective, it's exactly the opposite. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When there is nothing to approve of, when we are doing everything wrong, he demonstrated his love. We need to go to, to break barriers down around and love those who are blowing it most. That's why Jesus had to pass through Samaria and somehow we need to begin to understand and apply the fact that humanity never would have understood or experienced the love of God if Jesus had not given up certain divine rights, made himself a servant, and suffered upon a cross. Nobody would have understood God apart from that. Nobody's ever seen God, John 1 says, but Jesus has explained him. And because of the nature of God, that God is love, he is then a missionary God, and so God is always to, looking to break barriers. And so we need to be then, as the redeemed image bearers of God, those who are always looking to identify and break barriers because the love of God compels us. Jesus always expects that those that he saved will go out and also break barriers. You know, this woman did it instantly. At the end of the chapter, she goes into the city and she tells the men about Jesus. She confronts that gender barrier. And it says that the men believed her. You know that that was a confrontation of the cultural barrier of the day where women's testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. And yet she is the first female Christian preacher right here and the first women to go and tell the good news of the resurrection were women. I said that. Confronting gender barriers, cultural barriers, and they came and they themselves listened to this Jewish rabbi confronting religious barriers and they came to the place where they said, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. God, have grace on us to see and to confront barriers for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. Amen? Lord, we ask for that grace. As we prayed in the beginning of this teaching, we are aware of our selfishness and our need to not need, our need to be in control, that we'd rather be benefactors and servants who actually need. But we're seeing today in your example that you call us to something different. We ask for grace, God. Holy Spirit, we need you to apply this message to the relationships of our lives, the business dealings that we have going on, how we're dealing with sickness and difficulties. Teach us how to be this in life and in culture. I confess that I, I don't fully get it and I'm looking, I'm, I'm groping. How can I be like Christ in this instance? So Lord, help us, Holy Spirit, make application for us. I want to invite you guys to come and pray with the prayer team. If there's issues in your life, we have a God who listens. If you're struggling with some of these things, we have a God who cares. Pray for each other. Let's deal with the things that would be barriers in our own lives. Let's deal with our fake Christianity, our churchianity. So many of you are here just at church wanting to go through the motions. You're one of the biggest barriers to the gospel in our community. Deal with that today. Get on your face. Worship God in spirit and in truth. And as Jesus said to this woman, He'll come and find you.